The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Coming up on this episode of American POTUS. The presidency and tragic ending to the JFK era is well known. But how did POTUS 35 grow into the legend that inspires and haunts many to this day? His path to the White House included family privilege, luck, disease, heartbreak, but most of all, personal perseverance. The all-American story of how a young John Fitzgerald Kennedy went from supporting role to top billing on Pennsylvania Avenue. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn with the National Museum of American Presidents. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. Our guest for this episode on The Young JFK is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Fred Logoval. Currently, he's a professor of international affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government and professor of history at Harvard University. He's written or edited 10 different books, most recently a terrific book about the early years of POTUS 35. It's called JFK Coming of Age in the American Century, 1917 to 1956. Fred, we're thrilled to have you join us here on American POTUS. I'm so pleased to be with you and look forward to a uh, a robust conversation. Fred, th- thank you so much for being part of American POTUS. And my first question is a very general one. Why did you choose to write about JFK? I think it's, it's partly a function of interest in the man. I've written about him in certain other contexts, particularly pertaining to the Cold War and especially Vietnam, which has been a subject of research of mine really since since graduate school days. And there's also, I also had a sense that the source material for a full biography of John F. Kennedy were superb. I had done enough research to know that at the Kennedy Library, for example, uh, and elsewhere, we just have really good material so that one could undertake a kind of life and times biography of a type, and maybe this is the third reason I'm doing this, of the types that I don't think we actually have. I mean, we have endless books about Kennedy's administration, about his family, about aspects of his life, but I didn't feel that anybody had really taken advantage of these materials to give us a kind of comprehensive deep dive into a person I think is of of great consequence in 20th century history. And so it's really a combination of, of those things that I think brought me to this. And the hope is, the conceit is, I guess, that I can not only tell the quite extraordinary uh, life of John F. Kennedy in this two-volume work, but also tell the history of the United States and of, I guess you'd say, world affairs in this half-century in which he lived. So I'm really trying to do both history and biography, if you will, at the same time. You do it wonderfully, and I will say, going back to the beginning of, of JFK, when I read the description of JFK as families, ancestors, and the prejudice they encountered as Catholics of Irish descent, it was pretty jarring, actually. Can, can you comment on how growing up as an Irish Catholic shaped the young JFK? I think it shaped them in important ways. I think it is fair to say that the prejudice had uh, lessened by the time JFK is, say, into his early teens, or even if he's in elementary school. I don't think he's encountering the same kind of discrimination that his father experienced or his grandfather experienced still. I think even for Jack Kennedy and for the other Kennedy kids, there was a sense that notwithstanding their wealth and, and their father had they had become very wealthy when, when JFK was young mm-hmm. and therefore had privileges that others didn't have. Even so, I think he experienced and they all experienced that they were certain ways part, I guess you could say. I think at Harvard he felt that. He was both uh, I suppose you could say in some ways an elite at Harvard, but also because of that Catholicism, because of the, the background, he could never quite be accepted by the by the Brahmins, as they were called. Mm-hmm. And I think he felt that it gave him a certain 
insider-outsider status that I think shaped him both then, really, and later. Now, you mentioned Harvard. As you trace his school years, it's very interesting to me to see a very charismatic, bright JFK who was extraordinarily casual, typically, in his schoolwork. So could you outline for our listeners his academic path and tell us which parts of that path you think were most impactful in his life? Yeah, it's it's an interesting, uh, probably not that uncommon a story, really, in which you have a bright kid, and his teachers could see that he had great potential, who didn't really apply himself very much at his prep school, which was choked. Even in his early years at Harvard, he was what we would later call a bit of a slacker, frankly. (laughs) Uh, and didn't really apply himself that much. But you could see, and this was interesting in my research, to go back and look at some of the papers, because they survived some of them. Not all of them, but some of them survived. To go back and see, to make my own judgments about the quality of those uh, those essays and, and, and papers, but also to see what his professors, his teachers had to say. And so you could see, I think, and I don't think this is, you know, I need to be careful in this book, not to see in this or that paper the seeds of his future greatness, yeah. the trap that mm-hmm. one can fall into. But nevertheless, I think that one can spot somebody who was interested in serious questions, who thought a lot, for example, already at Choate and certainly at Harvard, about democracy mm-hmm. and about what makes for effective leadership in a democracy. I found that completely fascinating. So there is a seriousness here. There's a serious side to to the to the young Kennedy that I think previous biographies, by and large, though they've been wonderful in lots of ways and I've relied on them, I think they've missed that side of them mm-hmm. that emerges, I think, actually pretty early, certainly by the time he's, say, a junior in college, mm-hmm. and especially in his senior year, it's pretty plain to see. Now, you paint a very interesting picture of the dynamic between JFK, his father, and his older brother, Joe Jr. I know it's kind of an unfair question, Fred, but can you comment on how those relationships shape JFK? I know that's such a large part of your book, but could you comment on that? Yeah, I think it is. It was a really interesting part for me in terms of the research. Um, you know, we, when we're historians and biographers and we're in the archives, you have these eureka moments when you begin to see patterns and you begin to see things that you maybe hadn't thought to look for. They just kind of jump out at you. And I think both of these relationships, as you say, are really important and, and I think quite fascinating. So if we take the father-son relationship first, I think that Jack Kennedy was very devoted to his father. Joe was the more sort of um, dominant parent in the in the household. Uh, Rose, I think, has been underestimated, I think, in terms of her importance to young Jack. Um, so we should not fall into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, trap. But nevertheless, I think Joe Sr. was the one who, when he was home, tended to be the one that um, drove the household, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. And Jack is very devoted to him. He, he admires the fact that his father has made a lot of money for them, and I think he wants to please his father. Nevertheless, there is this willingness on the part of JFK from, I would say, 1938 to 39. So he's a Let's say he's a junior in college and then a senior in college. Mm-hmm. You begin to see this willingness to separate himself from his father on the great questions of the day pertaining to potential U.S. entry into what will become World War II, obviously, before the war begins. And then after after the Nazis attack Poland and the war does begin, uh, the two of them are really, um, or at least become, very much apart from one another in mm-hmm. their position. He also is willing to go his own way when it comes to um, career choices, when he, when he later becomes a politician. It's Jack, I argue, who calls the shots in the campaign. It's not his father. And then, so if we, if, we, if we bracket that for a moment, the relationship with Joe Jr., who's the golden child, he's the oldest one in the family. It's a, there's a sibling rivalry between the two brothers. Jack is second in, second in line. They're also very close in certain ways. As Jack begins to have success. His senior thesis is published as a book, Why England Slept, becomes a minor bestseller. Joe's senior thesis is not published. Once Jack has success in World War II, or, or, or you know, more than success, a kind of heroic experience in World War II, which maybe we'll discuss, that I think is hard for Joe Jr. Mm-hmm. So that sibling rivalry, I think, becomes harder for him 
than it is for his younger brother. And I think that's interesting. And the last thing I'll just say here, since, since there is so much we could discuss on this, is simply that whereas Jack is able, as I said earlier, to disagree with his father, to take a separate position on whether the United States should aid the British and potentially get involved in the war, Joe Jr. is never able to do that. Joe Jr. is really in lockstep with mm -hmm. his father, really till the day he dies in 1944 in the war. Just a quick reminder to check out all the other great Season 1 episodes of American POTUS. And if you're interested in more information on any of our exceptional guests, please visit AmericanPOTUS.com. You'll find links to their personal bio and the many books they've authored. And while you're there, send us a note. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. I was unaware until I read your book about the role that Joseph played in exposing Jack to the world of European politics when he was serving as U.S. ambassador prior to and during the war. How did those experiences and travels help shape JFK's worldview? I think that the period of his father's ambassadorship, 1938 to 40, absolutely monumental time, obviously. When you think about that, this is basically a year before the war begins in Europe mm -hmm. and then for the first year after it begins in Europe. So he's ambassador at a critical time. And Jack uh, and Joe Jr. travel the continent uh, at their father's urging, sees a lot of this stuff up close, a lot of these developments. Jack, for example, in fact, both of them are in Germany right before the war begins. So in August of 1939, this is where I, I open the preface to my book. Jack is right there in Berlin, basically on the eve of war. And as you can imagine, he takes a lot from these experiences. There is a kind of international sensibility, I suggest. It becomes kind of a theme in the book that partly grows out of these travels, made possible by his father as ambassador. Mm -hmm. And here we should give credit to Joe Kennedy, to Ambassador Kennedy, because though he was a domineering personality in many ways, he insisted on the right of Jack and all the kids to chart their own path. He never said, you're going to be this and you're going to be that. This is what I want you to do for a career and you should do this for a career. Never. And in fact, what he wants to do here is to allow both of the older boys to see these developments. Um, and I think I give him credit for that. And I yeah. think it becomes really important in JFK in, in, in you know, paving his path, if mm -hmm. you will, mm -hmm. for his later career. As you talk about JFK's uh, academic career, his going out into the world, you, you detail the constant battles he's fighting against a variety of illnesses. And I won't go through the whole list here, but they were constant, including now we know Addison's disease. How did he live the life he lived with such energy and drive while confronting such a catalog of persistent illness. Oh man, you put that so well. I think that's, that's the, the contradiction there is really interesting that notwithstanding these ailments, and as you say, they are chronic from the time he's a little guy really to the end of his life, notwithstanding these debilitating illnesses, there's this extraordinary energy. And I think it's partly a family energy. This is something he inherits which allows, which enables John F. Kennedy, certainly in his campaigns, but you see, you see lots of evidence of this before his campaign, he's still able to go from, you know, from, from dawn until midnight. So if you look at his first campaign in 1946, absolutely amazing to me to see how he can just day after day be on the campaign trail. He drives his aids to exhaustion, but he's still able to go. So somehow he can do this. And I sometimes wonder if, in fact, the illnesses in their own way help account for this, that he's determined not to have them shackle him too much or slow him down too much. And it causes him to work all that much harder. But it's a, it's a really interesting dichotomy. It really is. Now, in March of 1943, Jack goes off to combat in the Pacific, entering what you call the phase of his life that would most shape him. So could you summarize for our listeners, perhaps, who have forgotten the story of his heroics on PT-109 and how you believe those events left a lasting legacy for Jack Kennedy? 
Yes. Well, he, he goes, as you say, in 1943. Um, it's interesting that, again, given his ailments, he's so determined to try to serve, not just in uniform, but he wants to be in a combat zone. And he is sent. And he goes to the Solomons in early 1943. And what happens on a really dark night, a moonless night in early August, is that his boat, his torpedo boat, he's the skipper of a torpedo boat, which is a small vessel of dubious military utility. It was known as a death death trap to many of the crew members who were on these torpedo boats. But it's rammed, if you can imagine, by a Japanese destroyer. Uh, and there, it's murky as to whether this was on purpose, whether the Japanese commander realized too late that he was about to hit this small American vessel. But the ramming occurs. Miraculously, only two of Jack's crew members perish and they die, I think, instantly. But the drama is not over, not over because this boat in the, in the ensuing hours is taking on, the, the portion of the boat that remains is taking on water. They have a decision to make. And to summarize a fascinating story, he makes the decision that they, the survivors, should make for a very small island that he can make off in the distance, which they do in shark-infested waters. It takes about four hours. Mm. He's towing one of the injured crew members. So you can imagine he's not just swimming for himself, but he's swimming for, for this other fellow. And helps, uh, helps ultimately to save the crew. I don't think anybody would call his actions prior to the, to, to the ramming heroic. But I think the word fits for what he does in the hours and days thereafter. It lasts about a week, and then they are then they're, then they're rescued. The drama is over. Now, as the war ended, uh, Jack is a war hero, and he almost immediately runs for the U.S. House in 1946 successfully. And we know he entered that race with the advantage of the Kennedy name, the Kennedy fortune, but that alone, you argue, was not enough. What were his strengths and his weaknesses as a new candidate? And what did that first campaign show the world about the future JFK? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, he was not a great campaigner early on in the traditional sense. He was not a particularly good speaker. He spoke too fast. He spoke at a, in a high register. He got nervous, especially when the topic was not foreign policy. He was already now, in 45, 46, more comfortable in the realm of foreign policy. But in a different sense, I think it worked for him in a funny way. In other words, his very, his very awkwardness, the fact that he had a certain reticence, there was a certain shyness to him, worked for him in the 11th district of, of Massachusetts in Boston. Lots of testimonials to this effect that voters gravitated to this young kid. He was 29. He was emaciated, uh, really, from the war. And there was something that just worked especially in smaller audiences, when he spoke before, say, 15 or 20 or 30 people, he connected with voters. And he showed what would later, I think, be a great asset of his, which is, which is his wit. There was a kind of um, sense of humor, a quiet sense of humor that I think worked. I would also say here that his military record was clearly a plus. Mm-hmm. And the actions in the Solomons, which were front-page news, certainly in Boston, I think worked for him on the campaign trail. We should acknowledge the importance of his father's money and the fact that the whole family really came out, or much of it at least, came out and campaigned. This was a family operation. That's, I think, uh, important. And then the last thing I'll say about this 46 campaign, which is really a feature of all of his campaign, is that he just worked really hard. Mm-hmm. He worked harder, I think, than the competition. He had the great fortune of not having to hold a regular job. The other candidates for the Democratic nomination, and there were 10 of them, I think, in total on the ballot. I think all of them, without exception, uh, were running for, for the Democratic nomination basically in their spare time. He didn't have to do that. So he had that advantage. Nevertheless, I think what we see both in this campaign and later campaigns, including for the president, is that J- a secret of JFK's success is that he starts earlier and he works harder than his competition. So when he gets into the House, you noted he had a great interest in foreign affairs, a concern with the spread of communism. How did those concerns, that interest, manifest themselves? Well, I think he was drawn principally to foreign policy. Maybe this is a, a function of his travels that we discussed earlier prior to, prior to the start of the war and after the war began, his own service, I guess, in the war. It's also a function of his reading. We haven't talked much about the fact that because he was sick as a child, he did a lot of reading in bed. And he was drawn in that reading. 
I think, to um, histories of European statecraft, in particular diplomacy, war and peace. Interestingly, he read Winston Churchill when he was a young man and became a kind of lifelong admirer of Churchill. So for, 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 for a set of reasons, I think he was drawn to foreign policy as a congressman. And he was most confident in that area. In domestic policy, I would say he was kind of a centrist Democrat. He paid attention to the issues that mattered to voters in the 11th district, issues pertaining to housing, for example, to labor legislation. But, you know, he's especially going to be focusing both here and later on international affairs. No question. Do you begin in the House career of Jack to see an interest in civil rights? Yes and no. I would say that his record on civil rights is quite, it surprised me actually, it's really quite progressive. If you look at his voting record on civil rights, for the advocates of civil rights, it's a good record in the House. Uh, And he's in favor of civil rights legislation really all the way through. At the same time, I wouldn't say he was passionate on the issue, either in the House or in the Senate. I don't think that he was moved. He would become in 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 the White House which will be something that I deal with in volume two, of course. Mm-hmm. I think he would. this would change. But in this period, I don't think John F. Kennedy was really moved by the plight of African-Americans, by the daily injustices that they endured, by the constant discrimination. He hadn't encountered all that many African-Americans in his life. The ones that he had encountered tended to be, you know, drivers, perhaps um, staff in one of the Kennedy homes, etc. So it's... Um, it's kind of a complicated issue, but his but his voting record is good. I think he was he tended to treat people in his right life the same way, and he I think he expected people to be treated, whatever their background, with dignity and respect. And I think in that sense he was not personally prejudiced. I don't think I don't see any evidence that he was. But this wasn't something. This wasn't an issue that moved him. As I guess is how I, see, I would put. I see. This time is when we also see the growing bond between Jack and Bobby Kennedy, especially during an extended trip they took together in 1951 to Europe, Middle East, Asia. Can you compare and contrast those two brothers who figure so much together in our history? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, I, I found this really um, fun to, to get into and to, to research because we know, of course, that the two of them will become so close. And I didn't know when I started the work on this about this early relationship. And let's remember that there's an eight and a half year gap between them in age. And so you can imagine that when they're little, it's just too big a gap for them to really get to know each other, to spend much time together. So it's this trip, uh, mostly to Asia, although it covers a big part of the globe in the second half or in the, in the latter part of 1951 in which they really get to spend a lot of time together for the first time. Uh, and their sister Patricia is also on the trip. And I think Bobby is thrilled beyond words that he can spend time with Jack because he has looked up to his older brother all the way through, uh, wants to emulate him in all ways possible. So there's that sort of relationship uh, from his perspective. Jack, meanwhile, I think is somewhat surprised that on this trip, Bobby turns out to be uh, loyal. He turns out to be fun to travel with. He is energetic. There's a kind of chemistry between them that I think both of them perceive. And Patricia also sees that the two of them are together. So it's a really kind of formative experience for the two of them. And then, of course, the following year, when Jack runs for the Senate against the mighty Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. in Massachusetts, Bobby becomes after the campaign is sort of floundering in the early days, he comes in, 26-year-old, and writes the ship. He's the one who basically takes, takes charge of this campaign in a remarkable way, and I think that further cements this relationship. And, you know, what's interesting is that they're pretty different men, actually, you know? Mm-hmm. Bobby's more intense. Bobby's more combative. Bobby's more uh, religious, I would certainly say. He feels more strongly than Jack does. He's slower to forgive slights than Jack is. Whereas Jack is the more dispassionate one of the two, the more, in some ways, the more scholarly, I guess. He sees the, he sees the gray areas of life where Bobby tends to, to, to see stuff more in sort of black and white terms. I think it's an endlessly fascinating relationship. 
seems like Jack was always kind of the poet and philosopher in the family. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I, I think I think so. I think especially here uh, in the period we're talking about now, I think that Robert, that Bobby, as he matures, uh, and in some ways perhaps especially after the, the immense tragedy of, of Jack's assassination, JFK's assassination, you see this side of Bobby also emerging. But I think when the kids are younger, as I suggest in my book, Jack is the one who in, in, in some ways stands apart from the other eight children. He's the, he's the family reader. He's the one who likes poetry. He's the one who um, stands apart as a kind of observer in an interesting way that maybe none of the other kids quite have. Now, we know that 1951 trip then helped cement this bond between Jack and Bobby, but it also affected... Jack's views of the world in in the midst of the Cold War. Could you comment yeah. on that? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, what happens? I think in the course of 1951, this year that we're describing now, and you see, by the way, some of this before the trip. It's not entirely from this fall 1951 trip. Earlier in 51, he takes another trip, a, a prior trip, which is mostly in Europe. It's not quite as extensive. But he basically has two very big trips in 51. But during the course of the year, what you see, something that I hadn't known before I began the research, was that JFK, he adopts views now that are more nuanced with respect to the Cold War. He had really been, I, I, I argue in the book, uh, an earlier chapter, that he was really a kind of original Cold Warrior. He and his father separated on this issue again. They were deeply uh, apart on the issue of the Soviet-American confrontation and what the U.S. policy should be vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. And Jack was really kind of an arch-cold warrior, I would argue. Mm -hmm. But what happens here, and and his father was not. His father was of the view that more than a few historians, by the way, now would share, which is the Soviets are not going to invade anybody. The Soviets are not a military threat really to Western Europe much less to us. So we don't need to be quite as vigilant. We do not need to be spending as much money as we're doing to wage this Cold War. That's the father's position. Mm -hmm. It's not Jack's position. But in 51, I think partly because what he experiences on these two trips, Kennedy, JFK, that is to say, begins to have a new position. I think he decides that you can't simply see this through the lens of the Soviet-American confrontation, through the lens of the East-West conflict, the people in the newly liberated areas of the world or the, or the places that will become independent in due course don't see things in this way. And we, the United States, this is now the, this is the new JFK here, we have to respond to this. We have to meet people where they live in a way that we haven't done. We have to offer them, we have to be, we have to offer something for them to be for not just against. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a really interesting shift in JFK. And as the last thing I'll say about this is that as the decade progresses and he becomes a potential candidate for for president, this is going to cause certain problems for him. This is something I'm going to deal with in volume two. In domestic political terms, it serves his interests to be quite black and white about this, to be quite stark, uh, to play up the threat. Whereas I think the private JFK, he still holds this more nuanced view that he develops in 1951. One of the many reasons I can't wait to see the next volume, Fritz. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about JFK's surprising rise to the U.S. Senate in just a bit. But first, a reminder to visit AmericanPOTUS.com. You'll find all the episodes up to this point and a resource page that has links to bios and books by all of our tremendous guest experts. And please drop us a note while you're there or on any of our social pages. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. I was reminded in your description of Jack's entry into the Senate, so he ran successfully in 52. When he enters that Senate, he is surrounded by giants, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Russell, LBJ, you say that Jack was a minnow among whales. How did he find his place in the Senate, and what were his priorities there? Yeah, I think he did feel like a minnow among whales. I think he understood from those early days in 1953 when he, when he takes his Senate seat, you know, wow, 
look at all these people around me. I'm in a different, you know, arena now. This is a different ball game for me. I think he does his homework. A characteristic, I think, of John F. Kennedy, the politician, is that this is a guy who studies the issues and informs himself on the issues, even when he's not particularly engaged. You know, even when he's not pushing legislation, for example, I think he does take this seriously. So that's one of the things he does. And he also learns the customs of the Senate, which is the more sort of, it's the one that, that proceeds on the basis of, of, uh, of good manners, maybe more than the, the rowdier House of Representatives. I think he finds the, this atmosphere more to his liking. So he fits in in that regard. I think he treats his senior colleagues with respect. That earns him some points. And he chooses certain areas, especially in foreign policy, to kind of try to make his mark. He's very selective, and it's mostly in foreign policy, including, by the way, on the the conflict in Indochina, that he uh, speaks up the most, and he gets respect for this. And maybe the last thing to, to, to be said here on this general point is that he shows, I don't know whether the word is social intelligence or if it's just kind of political savvy. Mm-hmm. But he shows an ability to get along well with Southerners, you know, the Democratic Caucus. They're in a supreme, they're very important you know, in the Senate in general, but certainly in, on the Democratic side. He shows an ability, JFK does, to get along well with Southerners. That's going to be important, I think, when, when, when his career progresses. But you see it here from an early point, and I think that, too, is significant, even though he never really becomes a Senate leader as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he, he realizes, you know what, this is going to take decades for me to become a top leader in, in, in this chamber. Mm-hmm. And I think he's too impatient for that. But, but he, he finds a way to make, to make his mark. And one very important thing that happened while he was serving in the Senate is he met Jackie, creating perhaps yes, one of the most famous couples in American history. Could you Remind our listeners how they met and tell us how that partnership worked in these early pre-presidential years. Yeah, so they they met in the spring of 1951. There was a dinner party in Georgetown at the home of Charles and uh, Martha Bartlett. Charlie Bartlett was the journalist and his wife Martha. And you know, there was some mutual attraction, I think, in that initial dinner party. But nothing came of it. But the Bartlett's were persistent. Because <laughs> a year later... So now it's the spring of 1952. They try again. They invite JFK and Jackie Bouvier to a dinner party again at their house about a year later, 1952. This time it clicks and a courtship begins. They don't see each other a lot because, of course, he's now commencing this epic Senate campaign against Lodge. And so that consumes much of 52 for him. Uh, they see each other occasionally, but they become a couple. I think when he beats Lodge, when he becomes a senator, he feels a need, and I think his father encourages this as well, a need to, to, to settle down. That means to have a wife and then a family. But I also think there is genuine affection and love between them. They get married in 1953. And I would say in terms of your second question. I think it's a it's an important partnership. I think that there are strains in the marriage from an early point. He sees other women both both before the wedding and after. That's of course very hurtful to to Jackie. But in substantive ways, I think she's very important to his development as a politician. She translates materials for him from the French, for example. I think she helps him become a more effective speaker. She's one of the people who says, Jack, you need to slow down. Um, you speak too quickly when you give uh, speeches. And she talks about how he should, um, what his mannerisms should be on the, uh, at the podium, for example. And I think she, in, in substantive ways, helps to make JFK a better politician. And it becomes ultimately, including, of course, in the White House, I think an important, uh, an important part, an important uh, partnership between the two of them. Yeah. An amazing story, an amazing woman. Now, I know you also speak in your book about Jack's relationship and, and working relationship with Ted Sorensen and the writing of Profiles and Courage, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1957. And the narrative often has been that Sorensen really wrote that book. We 
I recently had Craig Fairman on as our, our guest. He wrote a book called Author in Chief, and he is of that opinion. Uh, but you show us in JFK a more collaborative effort. Could you perhaps comment on this and how the publication yeah. of that book enhanced Jack's national stature? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to be said here is that it's an amazing political partnership. I suggest it's one of the one of the most remarkable such uh, pairings, if you will, in modern American political history between JFK as a senator, mm-hmm. and then later as president, but as a senator, and Ted Sorensen. Sorensen is that rare bird in Washington who can not only help shape policy positions, sort of the intellectual side of a lawmaker's positions, but also then help craft the speeches and the articles in which those policy positions are you know, articulated. It's not that common for, for, for the same person to be to be that involved on both sides. Sorensen is, and I think he's very important to JFK as an emerging democratic leader. Sometimes it's hard to know where Sorensen's work ends and JFK's begins in their speeches and in the articles, all of which are written uh, under JFK's name alone. But I do think it's collaborative. And so to get to your point about the book, Profiles in Courage, 1956, I think Sorensen is crucial. He drafts with some input from some professors, uh, professors that they consulted. He drafts the case studies, the chapters that make up the heart of the book. Mm-hmm. But he's too young, Sorensen, to really be able to articulate the broad arguments of the book, the themes. Uh, he's not able to really talk about the overall structure of the book. I think that's all JFK. I see and so I'm comfortable in saying that this is a collaborative, a collaborative effort, that the introduction and the conclusion, which to my mind are the most important parts of the book, both then and in terms of how we would read it today, those uh, JFK's imprint on those chapters, I think, is, is immense. And I think it would not have happened, the book would not have happened without, and certainly wouldn't have made I think the, the impression that it made it wouldn't have had the arguments that it had without JFK's own heavy uh, involvement in the drafting of this. I think it's a, it's a collaborative effort. Uh, I think it helps to, how should I put this? It um, cements, maybe that's too strong a word, it certainly more firmly established Kennedy's place in the Senate, especially when the book wins the Pulitzer Prize in 1957. That becomes controversial. Uh, I'm not sure, frankly, though. I think it's an impressive book. Not to say that it's necessarily Pulitzer-worthy. It's too thin. It has a sort of cobbled-together feel, in part because so many people had a hand in its in its drafting. But nevertheless, I think it, it is very important as a boost, if you will, to Kennedy's aspirations. And by this point, by the time he wins that prize, and this is something I'm going to deal with in the early part of uh, volume two. By that point, he's really quietly running for president. So he understands, and I think his associates understand, that this book, big bestseller, it's on a lot of school reading lists, it's going to help his cause. And you know, if I may say one other quick thing about this, I sure. do think that this theme in the book about courage and this question that's at the heart of the book, which by the way, was also there in his senior thesis. This is another reason why we should not exaggerate Sorensen's role in this, because Kennedy, in his own senior thesis at Harvard, had been interested in the same fundamental question, which is, what are the demands of leadership in a democracy? And in particular, when should a leader put aside the desires, or at least transcend the desires of his constituents, perhaps of his region, perhaps of his party, to consider what's what's in the national interest? Mm -hmm. That's the question that's at the heart of Profiles in Courage. And I think it's a question that, you know, in our own day, hasn't lost any of its, any of its importance. I think that question never goes away in a democracy. That's so, right. So in, you, in Volume 1, talking about 1956, when Jack came very close to being chosen as Adelaide Stevenson's vice presidential running mate, but was defeated in that effort by Estes Kefauver, a native of Tennessee, uh, that defeat, you show, was in many ways a turning point for JFK. So could you tell us how that was the case and how that moment was perhaps the beginning of Jack's run for the White House? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really dramatic moment. Uh, I'm not sure we've seen a national convention of either party since 1956 that had as much drama 
as the Democratic one did. When Adlai Stevenson decided, for for a variety of reasons, that when he decided, I'm going to throw up, uh, throw out, throw out to the convention the choice of who should be my running mate. He's going to leave it up to the delegates, and it causes this frenzy in which half a dozen Democrats, including JFK, seek this spot. And he comes very close, as you say, to nabbing that nomination. And at the 11th hour, is defeated by Keith Arbor. And it turns out to be, uh, and I'm not the first to say this, obviously, but it turns out to be an extraordinary moment for Kennedy because he comes out of that convention, a national figure in a way that he hasn't been before. He is in some ways the great winner, and Stevenson even acknowledges this, that uh, it's JFK who's in some ways the, the, the big winner coming out of the convention because Americans tuning in on television really in some ways for the first time in the kind of numbers that you see in 56. Americans all over the country see this young guy for the first time, magnetic, handsome, able to deliver a couple of speeches at the convention that are important, including his really brief but powerful concession speech, 140 or 150 words without notes, to Kefauver, Kefauver, it's a it's a dramatic moment. So he comes out of this well placed, as he himself understands, to maybe even seek the big prize in 1960. Certainly to be in the in the conversation about 1960. And I would say, in the absence of that struggle at the convention, he wouldn't have been in that position. And in some ways, losing was the best of all outcomes because. You know, the, the, the ticket went down to a resounding defeat in November. Probably would have gone down to a resounding defeat with Kennedy on the ticket. And maybe his Catholicism would have been blamed by people mm. who said, well, you know, Stevenson might not have won anyway, but Kennedy's Catholicism is part of the problem here. Now he didn't have to worry about that. It was, uh, he had no part in the, in the, in the fall campaign, other than giving speeches on on, on Stevenson's uh, behalf, but it and in some ways it set him on his way. Reminds me a little bit of Reagan in '76, uh, where he loses to Ford, but yeah. becomes very much a part of the national discussion after that. Not the first or the last time yeah. in, uh, in our political history in which uh, a narrow defeat turns out to be the best thing uh, for the candidate in the long term. Fred, I will say I grew up in a family that idolized JFK. My mother uh, campaigned for him, and, and my father loved him as well. And mm. uh, I, I really I really enjoyed your first volume. When will we get to see volume two? Well, you know, one of the things that I'm, uh, I guess you could say, dependent on or, or pining for, or whatever the expression I should use, is for the archives to reopen. Uh, the Kennedy Library in particular, which is a, an absolute goldmine. I, I should stress here that the materials that are available just down the street from where I'm sitting, I'm in, I'm in Cambridge, but in, in South Boston in Dorchester is uh, one of the crown jewels in our presidential library system. And it's been closed on account of the, the pandemic. And so in a sense, I'm in a bit of a holding pattern. There are also other archives. I, I want to go to, to Britain. I want to go to uh, to France. I want to go to other American um, repositories to do work in these archives, and I can't really do it until we have uh, openings. In the meantime, what I can do, of course, is this, the kind of stuff one can do in one's own uh, study, which is um, look at stuff that's been digitized, mm -hmm. uh, read the secondary sources, which I, of course, need to do, and that sort of thing. I think, you know, I, had to, I hesitate to say, but it's a few years away, I would say, before this thing, uh, you know, sees the light of day. Because as you know, publishers, even after I submit, the publisher often takes, you know, the better part of a year. Well, it depends. But let's say the better part of a year to actually bring the thing out to the public. Well, hopefully this pandemic will be behind us soon, please. And uh, I do encourage everyone to go to... The JFK Library and Museum, not only is it an amazing archive, but the museum is terrific. And the setting, you really can't beat right on the harbor. It's beautiful it, there. So, it, Yeah, let me just underscore what you're saying. I, I want to say the same thing. I think the museum is great. The people, the staff is wonderful. And the setting, as you say, out on, on uh, Columbia Point is, mm -hmm. is, is, is breathtaking. And I'll, I'll just say one other thing about this, which is that, you know, even though I am in a bit of a holding pattern, 
I'm excited about this. I, I think that uh, it's been really great to work on this first volume. I'm eager to now get into the, the race for the presidency. Volume two will cover the race for the presidency, the thousand days that he had in office, fascination, and I'm, I'm, eager to, I'm eager to launch in in a serious way. Well, Fred, listen, I have a few short questions that will hopefully give us a deeper look into the personal side of the young JFK. Sound good? Oh, perfect. Go all for it. All right. What were Jack's favorite hobbies? Well, he certainly liked sports and wanted desperately to have sporting success himself. And he did in some ways. In some ways. He, was an, he was an excellent swimmer. Uh, he was on the Harvard swim team, for example. He was really good at sailing. Uh, he was a highly accomplished sailing skipper. What he really wanted to have was success on the gridiron. Yeah. He, he dreamed of football glory, and he was never quite able to, to get there. Just all of his physical Other hobbies. Yeah, I think he, I think his build was wrong. Maybe he was mm-hmm. he was skinny, tall and skinny. Uh, he was yeah. kind of willowy, if that's the right word, and <laughs> maybe not ideal for the football field, especially in those days. I think people tended to play both ways, um, uh, and you played on both sides of the ball, and uh, uh, that was hard for him. Though he was enthusiastic, and he certainly tried for years. I guess you could also say under hobbies that he was an avid reader from a young age, as we discussed earlier. Yeah. Including, by the way, I don't know if we mentioned this, this was something he'd like to kind of keep a bit hidden. But he was interested in poetry. Uh, he memorized poetry. He liked poetry. It might be too strong to call it a hobby, but certainly reading I would put under that category. What would you say Jack was like as a, as a buddy, as a friend, as a wingman? What, what was he like? I think he was a loyal friend. I think so. many of his friends talked about that in their oral histories, including after his, after his death that, you know, he showed loyalty to especially a handful of friends. We haven't, I think, mentioned today Lem Billings, his closest pal from Choate, and really his closest pal right to the end of his days. But Billings, you know, spoke movingly of JFK's loyalty to him, as did various others. So that's, I think, one thing to note. Perhaps maybe somewhat paradoxically, he could be heedless. Uh, He wasn't always as uh, mindful of his friend's uh, uh, wishes as he might have been. He hurt uh, feelings uh, more than once. So there was that side of him too, maybe partly uh, an outgrowth of his privileged background. But I would also say in his favor in this regard is that he tended to treat people the same. So the fact that Lem Billings was from a kind of middle-class background that didn't bother JFK, and he had friends both at Choate and Harvard from, you know, from various backgrounds, and you know, they could be his his pals regardless. He was never a big drinker or smoker, other than his well-known attraction to women. What were what would you say his vices were? He didn't really have that many. I, I think it's fair to say that he didn't follow a particularly healthy diet, either as a as a kid or as a as a grown up. I don't know whether that fits fits under vices, but maybe that's the closest that I can come up with here on the spot. I don't think it was, uh, I don't, he's not somebody who I would say had a lot of them in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, that's certainly true. If he had not been a politician, what profession would mm. he have settled upon? My guess is probably journalism. In 1945, really interesting period, obviously, right after the German surrender, he is a journalist and reports for the Hearst newspapers from the United Nations conference in San Francisco. He then travels to England and reports on the British election in which Winston Churchill loses, um, the conservatives lose, and he shows a, an aptitude for journalism. And so I could see perhaps him doing that. He did, I think, determine that he would rather be in, in the arena than reporting on what's going on in the yeah, arena. Right. So it's in some ways hard to see him as a journalist, but I think he could have done that. Um, I could see him in academia, although he sometimes said, you know, that requires too much additional study. Maybe the law. One, I'll tell you one thing I could not see him doing. I could not see him following in his father's footsteps. Hmm. That is to say the world of, uh, of Wall Street, uh, of uh, finance, of, you know, investment. Hmm. had really... As far as I can see, no appeal whatsoever to JFK. And that's interesting because his father, of course, had made a fortune and um, had had great success in that area. 
uh, you proved that he was pretty fearless as a youngster. Did he have any phobias that made him pause and think twice? I mean, this wouldn't fit under phobia per se, but it is interesting that he didn't really like to be alone that much. I don't think it was a phobia about being alone. Interesting. He often liked, and Jackie, Jackie talked about this. He liked to have his friends around. I was sometimes frustrated to her. I think this, this, by the way, has been exaggerated by some authors, this, this, um, this inclination to be alone. But I think it's fair to say that that was something he, he preferred to be with people. He was mm-hmm. quite social in that respect. My final question, what's, what's your favorite quote of his from his pre-presidency life? Do you have one mm. that stands out? One that I just love is from a commencement speech that he gave at his alma mater just down the street from where I'm sitting now. It's a, it's a speech at the commencement uh, at Harvard, 1956 commencement speech. I think this is more or less what he said. Uh, this is, I think, toward the end of the speech. But he said, if more politicians knew poetry and more poets knew politics, I'm convinced that the world would be a little bit better place to live in this commencement day of 1956. Or It's almost exactly that. Yeah. And that's, um, I love that quote because it's an insight into him. It seems to me that there's real truth also in that quote. Mm-hmm. And I suppose if you'll permit uh, another one, this is from Please. Profiles and Courage. I also really think about this one kind of quite often again because I think it has, it has a kind of timeless resonance. But I think this is in the introduction. It's either the intro or the conclusion when he says, and again, it's, it's maybe a slight paraphrase. But he says, we the people are the boss, and we will get the kind of leadership, the kind of political leadership, whether it's good or bad, that we demand and deserve. But that notion that we the people are the boss, and we'll get, yeah. we'll get the kind of leadership that we, that we insist upon having. You know, I think about that a lot, including in our own day. That's a good one to end on. Yeah, for sure. Much. Fred, Great. Is, Fred has well, been, it's a been real, a pleasure. Yes, it's been a real pleasure having you on American POTUS. Thank you so much. Best of luck with Volume 2, and we hope you can join us again in the future. Listen, I'm almost going to demand. Well, I can't do that. But <laughs> I'm going to request that you reserve reserve a slot for me when the time comes because I'd love to be back with you guys and and do this all over again. It's been great. Sounds great. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. The American POTUS podcast is produced by the National Museum of American Presidents. Graphic design by the Thought Bureau. An original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. If you want to know more about today's guest expert, including all of his published works, simply visit the resource page at AmericanPOTUS.com. And while you're there, send us a note. Let us know what you think of the podcast. Finally, it's our presidential last word from POTUS 35, John Kennedy. Quote, a man may die, nations may rise and fall, but an idea lives on.